Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And good morning and a nice long weekend. Uh, hope you're listening um, under your dinner. It's, it's a warm day, so you don't really have a dinner dinner. It's a warm morning. Um, welcome to Solidarity Breakfast, and this is Lalita Chalaya here, taking you through to 9 a.m. And we have a fairly jam-packed program as usual. We have um, our regulars, which is Rank and File Radio with Marcus Harrington. And, of course, we have the week that was with Uncle Kevin Healy. A um, couple of interviews uh, done over the last couple of days. An interview with Kate Hudson. We did. I did with um, Lynn Beaton. Uh, Kate Hudson's from England or London, rather, and she's involved in the Left Unity Project that has been going on for for a while. And what's happening um, there in relation to the the emergence, I guess, of um, Jeremy Corbyn as a socialist or communist candidate. Uh, as leader of the uh, the, the Labour Party there. And um, an interview with Dick Nichols from Barcelona in Spain, who's a, a regular contributor to this program, and he's a journalist uh, for Green Left Weekly, um, who reports from Spain. Okay, so let's move on to um, the interview we did with Kate Hudson. Um, hope you'll enjoy this one. We're talking with Kate Hudson in London, and Kate's the General Secretary of the Committee for Nuclear Disarmament and the National Secretary of Labour Unity, uh, one of the left parties in England. And um, Left Unity. (laughs) Left Unity. We're talking on Wednesday, the day after Jeremy Corbyn gave his speech to the Labour Party, and I guess everybody here who follows politics is pretty excited by the events in Britain. And uh, what's it like to be in Britain, Kate? really is fantastic. You know, we've seen the decline, political decline of the Labour Party for at least two decades, moving from being social democratic party of the kind of more or less typical European style, although with more trade union input, but going from that with Keynesian policies and so on, to being a party which has embraced neoliberal economics, has attempted uh, to triangulate, as they call it, with Tory policies, shifting to the right, tacking to to the right on every case, trying to um, situate themselves as a party of the centre and abandoning the working class in Britain, um, poorer people, progressive forces, you know, a, a complete shift. And I'm sure you'll be familiar with that type yeah. of progress. It's happened mm. in 
social democratic parties across Europe and elsewhere. It's very familiar to us. Our Labour yeah. Party has, you know, and is still absolutely on that line. It's a new liberal pathway it's taken. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I'm not aware uh, that a, a challenge to that at such a high level, i.e. at a leadership level, has actually happened and been successful um, anywhere else. And so the, the challenge here in Britain is, can we take that change in leadership, very, very clear social policies expressed by uh, the party's new leader, and can that be brought into and up by the party as a whole, so it's not just an individual leader with good politics on a party that's kind of Blairite and neoliberal. Can he, uh, as it were, reclaim the Labour Party for socialist politics? And that, that's the challenge. And there are hundreds of thousands of new members, uh, tens of thousands of them young people who've never been involved now coming into the Labour Party. So that's what we're hoping that it would be possible to change the nature of the Labour Party back to the kind of progressive force it used to be and perhaps um, be better even than it used to be. You know, there were problems even in the past with Labour, but you know, perhaps it can become a new political animal. Yes. Uh, Kate, I, w- I was watching the speech, um, a video of the speech, and it was obvious that, yeah. that the whole hall was just buzzing with excitement and appreciation that there was a leader who would stand up and say these yeah. things mm. to the party and to the nation. And so I'm, I, mm. I, I couldn't help thinking there must have been an awful lot of Labour Party m- members who've been harbouring, you know, a bit of agony and resentment over these years at the direction the party's taken, do you think? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the key change in Labour came in the early 90s, early to mid-1990s, when Blair became leader and the whole New Labour project, as it was called, and the and the party went through a kind of seismic shift to the right. And there were many people who didn't uh, accept or agree that that was right. It didn't chime with their own politics and their mm. understanding of solidarity and class and so on, their kind of political priorities. But they were kind of forced to believe by the party leadership or to come in line with this idea that you couldn't win as a left with a left approach in Britain that you had to kind of capture the middle ground and in order to do that you had to sacrifice your left-wing values and you know popular principles so people had that forced on them and and not everybody agreed with that you know many many people left the Labour Party because you know I mean particularly Blair's um, role in the Iraq war for example but on many issues social issues Blair's failure to restore trade union rights you know after Mrs Thatcher um, axed so many of them and so on. So that, as you say, yes, there has been that uh, strong grassroots opinion in the Labour Party and now people feel that the party can be theirs again. And yesterday when I was at... Um, in the queue for the cloakroom, in fact, to get my coat back at the Labour Party conference. I was, I was behind two women, and they were saying to each other, they didn't know each other, they were just saying, I felt I'd lost the party in 1997. It didn't represent me anymore. I stayed in, but, you know, I felt it had abandoned me, and now I feel I've got my party back. You know, and that, that's the sentiment, strong sentiment. Well, it's a fantastic sentiment, and I sort of can appreciate that because I know that in Australia there are lots of people who are still in the Labour Party and who despair, but they somehow have accepted that, you know, this is what we must do for now. 
and and so that I imagine there would be people in Britain who mm. were the same and suddenly go, okay, that now is over, mm. thank God. Yeah, I think it will give heart to others. I mean, it, this happened in a very specific way, quite by chance, as I'm sure you're aware. The, the party, the previous uh, party leadership had changed the voting system in order to uh, disenfranchise strong union votes. And they gave the voting instead to individual members and they also created a new category of support. You didn't have to join the party to vote. You could be a supporter for just three pounds. So this was designed uh, to kind of get rid of the union power, in essence. But then when Jeremy Corbyn got on the ballot paper, quite by chance, in fact, because you have to have 35 nominations from MPs to get on the ballot paper, and there weren't 35 left-wing MPs who would support Jeremy, um, but strangely, right-wing MPs or very establishment M- Labour MPs nominated him to be nice, you know, in order to have, let's have a little bit of a debate. Yes, we'll nominate <laughs> Jeremy and put him on the, on the ballot paper. But then this opened up this huge opportunity and, and hundreds of thousands of people joined and became supporters in order to vote for Jeremy because they supported his politics. And um, Margaret Beckett, for example, she was a former Labour foreign minister, a very senior person. She had nominated Jeremy. And she said afterwards, this is the biggest mistake of my political life to nominate Jeremy Corbyn, you know, because <laughs> he only had one, you know, he just had the exact number. Yes. So if any one of those hadn't nominated him, he, this wouldn't, he wouldn't be leader now. But they brought, they, they opened the way themselves to this victory by changing the voting system. Sounds excellent to me, <laughs> Kate. The, the, the thing that uh, I've been thinking about is that left-wing wave that has been sweeping Europe, especially in Greece and Spain, uh, and the anti-austerity mm. movement seems mm. to have fed into the sentiment um, of the uh, British people, I guess. But the other issue is the fact that he's mm. now in the driver's seat. I've seen a lot of um, of his speeches on YouTube and absolutely inspiring. And I thought, oh God, is he a Labour Party person or a socialist person? It's, 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 a, it's a, bit of a, a bit of a confusion. Mm. One is, mm. the, is the threat from the right wing. Yes, I mean, this, this is a very serious matter. Um, I mean, with reference to the kind of anti-austerity and left movement across Europe, it, it's the case, saying he's mobilised the same kind of sentiment and groundswell, um, an anti-establishment groundswell in Britain that Theresa has done in Greece or Podemos in Spain or other left parties and movements in other countries. And it, because of the nature of politics in Britain, you know, the first part of the post system, this has burst out via Jeremy Corbyn. So it's a similar sentiment through a different kind of political medium. Um, but as you say, the danger from the right and from the establishment here in Britain is enormous. Mm. I mean, obviously from the Labour Party establishment, because uh, it's widely thought here that they will, at the first opportunity, they will try and get rid of him because they cannot allow Labour to become a socialist party in effect or even a kind of left social democratic party. Um, but then for the right, you know, the political, the British political establishment, it's completely unacceptable that, well, it's OK, he could be leader of the Labour Party and, as, and they think he will never be electable, so that will destroy the Labour Party. Uh, but the danger is, of course, that he um, makes Labour very popular and he becomes the Prime Minister. And they, <laughs> they would find that absolutely intolerable because of the threats it would make to their 
uh, economic stranglehold, you know, because he's going to, would introduce tax reforms and so on. And there's a lot much made of by the Tories about he'd be a threat to national security, you know, because he's against uh, Trident nuclear weapons and he's well known to be against NATO and he's against bombing and all that sort of thing. So they, they did a, a kind of advert, you know, this is bad, he's, you know, he's bad, threatens your national security, your economic security and your family security or something. You know, just that's, that's, that's the tack that they have. And there's even, we've even had reports of a general saying it would be a mutiny if Jeremy Corbyn became prime minister. Yeah, so these are, you know, and may, so maybe that's been hyped up in the media. But without a doubt, the establishment is 100, 200% against Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and they will work to destroy it. And there's a long time, isn't there? It's a long, it's a long lead in because there's still another five years really mm. until the next election. And so in those five years, um, I'm assuming that he will consolidate his positions and his policies will become clearer and his support will grow. Well, um, that's one possibility. Uh, However, there are um, other elections this coming May. So the Scottish Parliament um, elections, the Welsh Assembly elections, Ah. the London Assembly elections, you know, so these big um, national and regional authorities and the the Mayor of London position and and those sorts of things. So the first electoral test will be in May. If, If Labour does well under his leadership, then he will be strengthened and it will be possible to consolidate. If they don't do well in the elections, then then the party will move to get rid of him. Yes. That's that's the situation. Yes. And so, Kate, can we ask, um, what does it mean for other left groupings in Britain? Um, I presume you must all be scratching your head and (laughs) saying, should we go in again? Or if not again, but at least should we go in? (laughs) Well, there are. Well, yeah, it's a big challenge. Um, And I can tell you from the point of view of left unity, you know, which, as you know, is a sister party of uh, Podemos and Syriza and so on. Yes. We've uh, recently been, uh, we've been accepted as an observer party in the European Left Party, which is the big uh, sort of party across Europe made up of all those left European Left parties. So we're very much in that fold politically. So we have, diff- I mean, we're an anti-capitalist party and so on, anti-imperialist. So there are very many similarities and common ground with Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, he's a great friend of all progressive forces. So we are absolutely delighted, absolutely delighted. This is a, a massive and unexpected change in British politics. We're not planning, although we've got a con- conference coming up, so it's a conference that will decide. We're not currently planning to dissolve and go into the Labour Party, but we have members, you know, quite quite a lot of members who have decided, you know, not ho- in, not in hostility to left unity, but um, deciding that they can be most useful going into the Labour Party, and that's the political choice that they've made. So, and and we respect that commitment is to work uh, alongside um, Jeremy's supporters in the Labour Party. You know, and and the reality is that many of Jeremy's supporters are outside the Labour Party. You know, the supporter mm-hmm. category in the in the voting. They're not in the Labour Party. So it's a kind of Jeremy Corbyn movement, as it were, both inside the Labour Party and outside the Labour Party. And many of us in Left Unity feel that we support Jeremy and his values, we support those policies, we'll be working to advance those policies, and for the time being at least, uh, we will retain 
an independent party because we're a campaigning party and an activist party and the Labour Party is and hopefully they'll go in that direction but at the moment we have a, a strong political role outside the Labour Party in addition to supporting Jeremy and, mm. and everything mm. we can do to assist. And I suppose another consideration is the question of actually what's going to happen to Jeremy within the Labour Party and so if you all just you know left your um, your organisations and the structures that you've developed then you could potentially risk it all. Yes, that's right. I mean, if Jeremy's, if they have a kind of a, a Labour establishment coup against him or, you know, deselect mm. him as leader through proper processes mm. uh, after the May elections, if it's not a very good showing, then that that's finished. You know, I mean, there will, still, there will be a reignited left within the Labour Party that will continue to fight, but not everyone wants to spend their political life fighting inside the Labour Party. No. You know, one would want to support a left-wing Labour Party, but not everyone has the stomach or thinks it's the best use of time to be fighting internally in a party. Mm. So we sincerely hope that he's not going to be, um, you know, got rid of in a in a in a terrible and unprincipled way. But also being being able to fight and have a clear voice outside the Labour Party is good. You know, Opportunity has its website and its media profile. We have quite a good media profile, even though we're small. Uh, we have campaigning, we have local branches across the country. So we are able to have a voice, a strong political voice that is absolutely categorical on things that the Labour Party doesn't, because not all Jeremy's policies are translated into Labour policies. I mean, so if you take, for example, Trident nuclear weapons, yes. which Jeremy 100% opposes, and he's, and he's fighting on that, but most of his shadow cabinet are in favour of nuclear weapons. You know, and it was a big issue at Labour Party conference. He wanted to have it debated and voted on to oppose, have a policy to oppose them, and conference through various mechanisms defeated that. Didn't I mean, it didn't defeat his policy. Oh, did it they? kept it off the agenda. It was in what's called the priorities ballot the mm. conference voted not to put it on the agenda and there was all kinds of double dealing and goodness knows what behind the scenes in my opinion the opinion of many people including mm. the media but so so labor remains um a pro-nuclear party in its policies so there has to be a big fight on that and similarly you know who knows whether labor will oppose bombing syria if Cameron, our Prime Minister, brings that to Parliament in the next few weeks. You know, who knows? So the fight, has, the political fight has to go on inside and outside the Labour Party. Can the Labour Party be won for Jeremy's policies? That's the question, and that's what has to be uh, assisted with, with all our strength. Kate, one of the difficult things it, it would strike me for Jeremy Corbyn himself is that as a backbencher, he's been able yes. to speak out about, against things like the Trident policy, etc. But as leader, is it more difficult for him to publicly oppose policy? Not really. I mean... As part of the past few days, every day, Jeremy has been explaining that he is against nuclear weapons yeah. and he knows that cabinet, shadow cabinet colleagues, even ones that he brought into the shadow cabinet, many of them support Trident, and he said he's going to do his persuasive best to bring them round. And they're going to have a debate in the Labour Party. He's going to bring it back and and try and change the policy. So he's not. Mm. He will never be silenced on the things that he thinks are important politically. He will keep on fighting on the question of Trident. There's, there's absolutely no doubt about that. You know, the problem is the forces against 
him. In, I have no doubt that uh, the majority of the Labour Party members, and certainly of its supporters, are opposed to Trident. It was absolutely central to Jeremy's campaign and had overwhelming popular support at every meeting and rally and hustings that he went to. You know, right. So mm. you just need to have a proper fair debate and a fair vote on it. But, you know, whether that will come to pass, whether it will be allowed by the Labour establishment, that, that's the question. But he will never uh, give give up his principles, even if he's the only person in the Labour leadership <laughs> with that well, position, even if he's in a minority. And sort of contrary to my earlier question or observation, sort of is the fact that I know that you, and I don't know if other our listeners will necessarily realise this, but that you have actually worked closely with Jeremy in the peace movement. Is that right? Absolutely, yes. I, I count, I'm, well, I'm one of the many thousands of people in the movement who are fortunate enough to have worked very closely with Jeremy and to count him as a friend. You know, he's a, a very, oh, I don't know how to put this exactly, he's a very normal, ordinary sort of person. He's one of us. He's one of the movement. Even though he's been an MP for decades, he's not a kind of puffed up, ego-type person on his dignity. He's someone he has been, well, he's still is a, a vice chair of CND, for example, my organisation campaign mm. for nuclear disarmament. Mm-hmm. You know, he comes to meetings, he participates, he comes to rallies, he doesn't always think he has to speak. You know, he's a, a very decent one-of-us person and he's been kind of put into this situation unexpectedly. You know, he wasn't expecting when he put his name forward. We all pressed him to put his name forward. He said there has to be a candidate from the left, you know. You know, even if, even if well, we all expected he wouldn't win, you know, because left candidates... Oh, so won. he was pressed but, to do you know, it. We all said you have to do it. Okay, that's good to know as well. I was also thinking today when I was watching the conference speech, I wonder, you know, why, at what point did he decide to put his hand up? At what point, sorry? Did he decide to put his hand up? Ah, well, this is interesting. (laughs) Um, Because there's a, you know, there's a a group of, a very small group of left-wing Labour MPs called the Campaign Group, you know, and in the past, they've usually put up a candidate. Like last time, five years ago, it was Diane Abbott, who's a very fine left-wing Labour MP. She's a great figure. And then other times it's been John McDonnell, you know, who's now the Shadow Chancellor. And they've got, you know, they they always come last. You know, they put up a good fight, but they always come last, you know. And then this time, I think John McDonnell didn't want to do it again. Uh, Diane Abbott was standing to try and get the uh, nomination for... London's mayoral, Labour mayoral candidate, so she couldn't do it. So they all looked at Jeremy and said, well, you should do it. (laughs) So he thought about it. He asked other people what they thought. I mean, that's the kind of man he is. Um, And we all said, yes, you've got to do it. So he wasn't looking to do it. He didn't choose himself to do it. Other people put him forward and he agreed in the collective spirit after consultation that he would do it. And that, that's how it happened. Kate, one of the interesting things that he's brought to the fore is appointing more than 50% of the shadow cabinet uh, as women. Uh, I'm just wondering, you know, given that the yeah. youth have mobilised to support um, Jeremy, is there a mobilisation amongst women to now support him as well? That's a very interesting question. I'm not aware that there's a kind of or organised section. I mean, there are women's sections, or there used to be certainly women's sections in the Labour Party. I don't know if those structures still exist, to be honest. But I'm not aware of any organised groupings. But there is, there's no doubt that he is very popular 
with women members of the Labour Party. I mean, his values, his anti-war and anti-nuclear positions, those are very popular. And, I mean, it has been very significant what he's done with the Shadow Cabinet. And also, for example, his parliamentary private secretary, PPS, which is an important, it's a sort of junior Shadow Cabinet or, you know, governmental position. But nevertheless, it's a very important position working very closely with him. And his PPS is a, a young black woman. She's just, you know, this is her first time as an MP called Kate Ossimore. And she's an absolutely excellent left-wing, strong young woman. You know, her mother was um, very active in the Labour Party black sections in the 1980s. You know, very strong, powerful left-wing woman. You know, so this is great. This is really great that we're going. Hopefully, we'll see a situation where the leadership of the Labour Party starts to look more like a cross section of the British population, and that's exactly what we need. You must all be wondering whether you've woken up in another land, because I feel like that. <laughs> I feel like that on this other side of the world. It's like this man. Everything he does every day, I go, oh yes, that's what I want him to do, and that's such a new feeling yeah, because know. you know you find occasionally people come up and you think oh they might be all right and the next thing you know oh no so this is just incredible because he seems to just get better by the day and on every level so even on the yeah, level on I the think, levels of you know yeah, I think- not singing the national anthem not going to some football thing because he had a pre-planned meeting with his some of his constituents all of those things that even those levels are just so exciting i think yeah i mean there's no doubt that he will have to do things you know bits of ritual that he may not personally be comfortable with but at some point but you know i think we just have people will have to accept that sometimes he will have to do some bit of ritual and on every single principled thing, he is he is just fantastic. And actually, I did, you said you thought he get, got better every day. I think he is getting better every day because it's like he's growing into the role. You know, he isn't a backbencher anymore. He is now the party leader. And yeah. it's like he's becoming aware of his, his strengths. And, and what really keeps him going in, through the difficult moment is that he has such an enormous mandate. You know, he didn't just squeeze in on the vote. Mm. He won 60% of the vote. Mm. That was more than double all his rivals put together. You know, I mean, it was just absolutely, absolutely incredible. That's the truth. It was just absolutely fantastic. It's phenomenal. He has that, that strength, and you can... You can see that strength coming through when he speaks now, the confidence and, the, you know, he's just going to take that forward, not for himself, but for, for the working people of Britain, you know, for the people who've been disenfranchised, for the 30% of people who didn't vote in the general election because they don't think it makes a difference who's in. Now we have to help them understand it does make a difference who's in. It makes a difference if Jeremy Corbyn becomes Prime Minister. Absolutely. That's just fantastic. Kate, thank you so much for being available to 3CR. Uh, for this interview and it's very inspiring. We will keep a close eye on this and we might get back to you as things develop because that mayoral election sounds uh, quite a challenge. It'll be interesting to see how that, you know, how that unfolds. And also it'd be very interesting to talk about Scotland. Uh, but we're going to have to wind up now. So we'll, Thank um, you very much. Yeah, it's been lovely talking to you, Kate, as always. We'll hopefully talk to you again soon. Thank you. It would be a pleasure. Yeah. Bye-bye. And that was a little exciting story about what 
uh, is sometimes called the accidental leader of the Labour Party in Britain. But what a storm, what a storm in the UK, um, adding to the tumultuous political situations in Europe. You know, we put Greece and Spain and Portugal and now UK together. Seems to be there's a wave of reaction to the, to the neoliberal agenda and austerity measures that are being foisted onto people all over the world almost. Now, let's go on to some um, announcements and um, we shall then go on to rank and file after that. Thank you, Your Worship. The Marxist Cowboys is a short, subversive uh, film about the alleged criminal activities of the Marxist Victorian Labour College over a 40-year period, uh, Your Worship. And it is all true. Listen, mate, I'm facing a few criminal charges. Yeah, 325 fraud charges? Oh, they're all bullshit, mate. I was shocked. It has a cast of malcontents, including one Karl Marx. The wheels of the class struggle will turn again. This bit of subversion will be shown with two other bits of subversion. At 3CR on Monday the 5th of October at 7pm, 21 Smith Street Fitzroy. Check the website if you need more criminal ideas of crime. Just be there. I know I will be. Thank you, Your Honour. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. I hope as many listeners will turn up to that function. It's a fundraiser for 3CR. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast and I'm your host, Lalitha Chalaya, and I'll be taking you through to 9pm. Uh, a couple of announcements. We have a No to Racism um, rally in Bendigo and that's quite, that's an interesting one because... Um, there's a bit of a story to this because the um, Bendigo um, Council had approved the building of a mosque in um, Bendigo and the UPF, the United Patriotic Front, which is a racist organization, um, identifies a little bit to the fascists, I suppose, um, has been creating a lot of trouble up there and, in fact, closed down a council meeting. So there is a rally to support the building of the mosque and the councillors who are fighting this horrible um, fiasco, I suppose, in a sense. So it's on the 10th of October. It's a Saturday. It's 12 p.m. And it will be at the Bendigo Town Hall. Bit of a nice drive up there if you have a free afternoon to go up there. It'd be great because they will be thankful for any support that comes from people in Melbourne. One up. no, we, we won't have time for announcements. What I'll do is go straight on to Rank and File Radio and then come back to more announcements. On this week's edition of Rank and File Radio, author and historian uh, John Tognolini, who has recently launched two books, is the special guest on 3CR this morning. Welcome to today's program, John. Oh, thanks a lot, Marcus. Uh, look, lovely to be here. And I guess the two books uh, you're referring to, uh, one I wrote last year, uh, which is called uh, Bravo's Part 1, Gallipoli 1915, which is an historical novel, because I think uh, if you're writing, a lot of people are in the reading novels and don't read like a straight history type thing. And that's the difference with a second book, which was only published last week, uh, which is A History Man's Past, uh, a shared memoir, um, other people's stories and part one, other people's wars. And mainly I've drawn on my uh, media work over the past 30 years and transcribed a lot of interviews, a lot of people I've met and written a bit of my own story in regard to it. Okay. And by way of background, you previously worked in Melbourne as a builder's labourer? 
Oh, look, I grew up in Melbourne, Brunswick, a long time before the yuppies moved in. I uh, went north of the Murray in 1981, uh, worked in a couple of manufacturing places and then up in the railways for about four years as a fettler and with a deregistration of the BLF, I went into uh, construction because I thought that was an attack on the whole working class, not just one section of it. And pretty much it set the pace uh, for all the anti-union attacks that Hawke did in many ways that the Liberals took up. Actually, in Victoria, a Liberal Party politician said in Parliament, State Parliament here, we thank the Labor Party for what they've done to the BLF because it's shown us how to punish other trade unions. And in your book, A History Man's Past, you've paid tribute to the BLF and also their use of the Eureka flag in the preface to the book. Well, the Eureka flag is the flag of the battlers in Australian history. It always has and always will be, despite some sort of uh, nutters here on the far right. They tend to not use it anymore. They tend to use uh, the Australian flag, which gets me a bit because of the Union Jack in it. But... Uh, a lot of I've got a lot of quotations there about the Eureka flag. Um, of course, Raphael Carboni, our first major historian, was a, a leader of the Eureka Stockade. Um, but the other thing that comes into it for me, uh, John Cummins. It's going to be ten years since he died last year, uh, next year, uh, since he died of a brain tumor, and. 3,000 people marched through Melbourne CBD uh, behind his coffin that was draped with a Eureka flag. And I guess the thing about this book, it's the start of a series. Like, I wrote this thing, it was about 80,000 words, and I thought, this isn't going to be a book, it's going to be a doorstop, no one's going to read it. So I thought I'd break it up with different themes. And this first theme is other people's wars, and there's a connection with Eureka and Gallipoli. Peter Laylor's... Uh, grandson, Joseph Laylor, uh, was killed at Gallipoli with his grandfather's sword, which was totally against the rules. And he got pretty far inland, more than anyone else, and then find his body and his comrades till after the war, till Charles Bean went there. And, and he fought in some revolutions in South America. And the last bloke who actually held his sword was a bloke by the name of Harry Frame, who doesn't fit the sort of stereotype picture of an Anzac at Gallipoli because he was half Japanese. His father was a teacher who married a woman from Osaka and he got educated in England and, yeah, he was the last... Him and another bloke were the last two guys to come back from the neck. But every time he picked up Laylor's sword, he got a howl of Turkish bullets and, yeah, and we think about... We've all seen Peter Wu's film Gallipoli and, you know, the next big battle scene and that. Okay, and several interviews undertaken by yourself in the media work over the last 30 years are, are documented in the in the book. Um, who were yeah. some of the people that uh, you have interviewed? Well, one person was uh, Brian Day, or I should say Dr Brian Day, who's got a PhD. I haven't seen Brian for quite a number of years, and the interview was done in 1992. And Brian was a, a professional soldier. He joined the Army... In the 60s, he was involved in Malaya. He was involved in the undeclared war with Sicanos, Indonesia, the Confrontasi. And he was a warrant officer in the SAS. And he ended up serving with Yank Special Forces in, uh, I should say, US Special Forces. Um, 
in Vietnam and as well as in Cambodia. And when I saw him in 92, it was after he'd been on John Pilger's uh, documentary uh, series in 88, uh, The Last Room, and he's in John Pilger's classic book, A Secret Country. And he's talking to this American Special Forces officer and in the Blue Mountains when I visited him in his home then in Hazelbrook. He had a picture of this bloke, and this guy's got this chest full of medals and stuff like that. And you go into his, his study where we did this interview. He, uh, it was like going in a, a section of the War Memorial in Canberra. And uh, anyhow, in the John Pilger documentary as well as the book, he's talking about this guy, this American officer. And this American officer goes, we like you guys being here. And he goes, well, what do you mean by that? Well, the British have got the Gurkhas and we've got the Australians. And he just thought we've changed one imperial power for another. And that's one thing which I challenge in the book. Uh, that whole question, why has Australia been at war so much? Normally as a junior ally to the British and the United States. We've done some pretty nasty stuff ourselves too. But normally, and that's sort of tied into those big interests. Yeah. And one thing um, I make, um, and Malcolm Fraser said this, which is rather funny because I talk a bit about my life as a kid being a socialist at 16 and being annoyed when Whitlam gets sacked and you know, Fraser's a caretaker, prime minister and stuff. His Fraser has changed so much in the light of life. And before he died, he's talking about Australia getting out of the Anzus, the military alliance, shutting down Pine Gap, uh, Pine Gap for a number of reasons, but he's also talking about the drone war as well as um, uh, getting rid of American troops from northern Australia. But the big threat about Australia being tied in the war with China, which is a real possibility because of our American alliance. Okay, on the subject of the War Memorial, um, you also present a case in the book that the struggles of Australia's First Nations people in their struggle against uh, the, the. the, uh, the British invasion should be included in the war memorial. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the thing that gets me. Um, like, we can't discuss our own sort of uh, military involvement unless we talk, look at the sort of war waged against the first Australians and how they fought for their land. And One thing about my family, um, I had four uncles in the First World War, my old man and another uncle in World War II, but my old man was a veteran of Crete, and uh, one bloke who was on the retreat with Crete, the Suffica, uh, which is a southern part of the the Crete Island, um, was Red Sauna's a Gunja Jamara Aboriginal man from Western Victoria. He ended up becoming our first commissioned officer from Indigenous people in the Australian Army. Uh, he's actually served with the partisans for eight months. I've actually got a picture of Reg and his son Chris, who I met at the anti-bicentennial protest in '88, and uh, sadly they're both dead. But uh, I thought it was quite amazing. Here I am, a meeting uh, Reg's son, and here we are, both our fathers fought together. But you know, there's other things in regard to War Memorial too. Like um, there are, there's got to be that recognition. Uh, the war, but John Pilger in his film Utopia points out the Aboriginal head that's in the courtyard of a war memorial, and it's there with the uh, wildlife, with the reptiles, and you know, with the skippies and stuff like that. And you just think, this is hang on, this is 2015, it's just got to be removed. But you know, 
the Umarella people, the Ganjajamara people that fought the British and the colonisers in the Western Districts in that way, they had a pretty serious frontier war, which has got to be documented. And there was quite a few, wasn't it? Yeah. But it's also part of our history because our history is a shared history and we've got a shared future if we acknowledge that. And that's the uh, subject of your other book, uh, Brothers, about uh, the First World War, Gallipoli, and it's uh, the first volume of a bigger a bigger project. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to be doing a volume. Uh, you can walk through it's an historical novel, uh, which uh, a lot of people read novels, but the thing is anyone can pick it up, read it, and it's got characters based around... Uh, my uncles, but also different interpretations of what Australians are like. A lot of people think of my name, I'm Italian and stuff like that, whereas my family goes back, like my grandfather Antonio goes back to 1878 when he came out for the gold rush. And he married uh, my grandmother who was born here of Irish and English convicts, a vet from Van Diemen's land. And uh, she actually had three kids before she married my uh, grandfather because she was a widow to a timber cutter who got killed felling a tree. So she had 13 kids all up. My father, Vic, was a baby of the family, born in 1910. Oh, okay. That's your uncle who's depicted on the front cover of that book? Yeah, my uncle Stephen. And just one thing um, in regard to Uncle Stephen, he was a timber cutter before he went off to the First World War. Uh, but when he came back, he got involved in the Melbourne waterfront and he was involved in the big sort of uh, protests and strikes. And one character we should think about when we think about the whole World War I is a bloke by the name of Alan Whitaker. Now, he got killed by fellow Australians. Uh, he wasn't soldiers by friendly fire at Gallipoli or Western Front. He served in France or Belgium with big battles like Passchendaele where he was wounded. It was by a Victorian copper when the coppers got told to fire under the wharfies in 928. My uncle Stephen was at that protest. He actually worked as a wharfie up to his 60, well, late 60s. He was 68 when he died. Yeah, he's still working on the waterfront. And there's been an attempt in uh, recent years to have uh, Station Pier renamed Alan Whitaker Pier by the Victorian branch of the MUA. Oh, that's a great thing to do, and it's a great activist sort of view of history, in my opinion, getting that history done. There's actually a, a really good series on YouTube, which is uh, called 100 Anzac Voices, and it's got all these different stories of Anzac, and Alan Whitaker is one of them. Um, I'm a high school teacher, uh, have been for about 15 years, and I went to a a history uh, teachers association gathering in Sydney and it was a joint thing with the New South Wales History Council and uh, Monash Uni's undertaking this project about new archives and so forth and they're coming online but they made a hundred stories about Anzac and Alan Whitaker is there as well as Aboriginal people as well as women who weren't in the military but you know, did some incredible stuff and stories of people who who died in France, who died in Gallipoli, who died in the light horse in the Middle East. And there's uh, many myths surrounding the Gallipoli War. Does this does your book uh, attempt to rectify those yeah. and set the record straight? Yeah, yeah, yes. Um, uh, we didn't land at the wrong beach, land at the right beach. Um, people actually flew over it about three weeks beforehand and one of the reasons that uh, Australians landed before dawn 
uh, was they saw the emplacements and they changed the instructions and came very close to succeeding if it wasn't for Ataturk and moving, uh, defying his German general. And that's where Joseph Lawler comes into it because they were nearly at the top of Chanuk Bear and that's where he died. And there's a lot of myths about Gallipoli, uh, but uh, a couple of things I'd put forward in the novel is how... The water uh, was contaminated by petrol, or something like a thousand Australian and New Zealand soldiers were being taken off the uh, peninsula each week with dysentery and all sorts of bugs. Uh, typhoid was rampant. Um, see, I've been, it's always been a thing to me, like I knew a few years ago that uh, we're going to get drowned and a lot of jingoistic sort of crap about uh, the centenary. And one thing for me that's got me motivated writing this project, this series of brothers, these historical novels. And 1916 is going to be doing with Fromelles and Poziers. 1917 is going to be doing with uh, Passchendaele. And 1918, the so-called victory, where a lot of people died. But 1917 is also going to be dealing with uh, a mutiny that Australian soldiers were involved in at the major British training camp, uh, Itapels, which is what... Uh, the great war poet Wilfred Owen described as a bullring because of the sadism of the British uh, military police and training instructors that were there. Something like about ten, fifteen thousand soldiers actually mutinied, and you know, actually, there's scenes of Australian soldiers chasing down British military police with machine guns. And that was the first part of the interview with author and historian John Tognolini as he was speaking about his books, A History Man's Past and Other People's Stories, A Shared Memoir, Part 1, and Brothers, Part 1, Gallipoli 1915. Tune in next week at 8am to Rank and File Radio to hear the second part of the interview with John Tognolini. I'm the presenter of the program, Marcus Harrington. Thank you, Marcus. Um, that's John Tognolini, now author, an old comrade of mine I've known for many years. Always on the left, always progressive. Thanks, John. Um, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast, and I'm your host, Lalita Chalaya, taking you through to 9 o'clock. We'll just go to... What we'll do is we'll have some announcements before we go on to um, Uncle Kevin. We have a few things coming up. Exciting things, actually. One of my favorite singers, Paul Robson. Um, he, he's being a commemorate. It's a tribute in story and song to Paul Robson, um, featuring Desmond Lukey. And um, it's a live concert with interludes from George Gershwin, Gershwin's Porgy and B, 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 Bess, transcribed by uh, Jasha. Heifetz, featuring Catherine Luque as well on the on the on the violin, and the event takes place in Turak Uniting Church, six hundred uh, three Turak Road, Turak, on the 9th of October. It's a Friday at seven thirty p.m. and again on Sunday, the eleventh October, and two thirty p.m. Uh, tickets adult thirty dollars and concession twenty five, and the bookings for bookings go to all the W's trybooking.com slash backwards slash actually and capital I, capital M, capital M and capital L. For inquiries ring 9822361617. There's another event coming up, a day of protest songs. It's all musical stuff here. 
um, and they have got a, a fundraiser or a benefit for the Refugee and Immigration uh, Legal Center. It'll be lots of songs from. There's a great lineup of um, performers: Yolanda Ingley, too, Frank Jones, Little Foot, uh, Margaret Road Knight, um, and so on. And they will. The speaker will be David Mann, who is a refugee and immigration from the um, Refugee and Immigration Legal Center. The event takes place on the fourth of October, that's tomorrow, but in two and eight p.m. Uh, it's at the Le Monde Hotel, East Brunswick. From memory, I think it's in the corner of Separation Come Atherton and the end of Nicholson Street Tram. It's, I think it's $20, it says. Yes, $20 full and $15 concession. The fancy writing, I'm having difficulty reading here. Now, a very important event coming up, which is um, a rally. We are trying to mobilize massive amount of people as far as we can. It's a stand-up for refugees, 2 p.m. on the 11th of October, Sunday, at the State Library. Uh, slogans, no border force act, no turnbacks, close manners in Nauru, and mandatory detention. We won't be silenced. So that's a, lots of slogans there for you to make placards. Um, and if you t- it, hopefully you'll turn up because it is um, the second anniversary of Operation Sovereign Borders um, and the horrors of Manas Island remain with no permanent um, solution. Uh, now that the Abbott, Abbott government's, uh, uh, well, it was the Abbott government, the Liberal government really, is threatening workers with two years of jail if they talk about what they witness in detention. It becomes harder and harder for refugees to have a voice in the community. Uh, no feedbacks. If you oppose the attempt by this Liberal government to criminalize refugees, and refugees are not, legal, are not illegal as we know, um, so let us mobilize for this event and the bigger the better and this event being sponsored by a multitude of people including labor for refugees um i think that's amnesty international the greens um australian churches refugee task force and asu uh, energy worker counts i think it's called niw and a, a variety of other people are sponsoring this event so hopefully you will mobilize plan for it because it's really important to send a message to the government about the refugees and about the disgraceful way we treat refugees in this country um and we know all about the trauma suffered by children women and the rape or the news about the rape recently, and um, not much is being done by the crimes committed by what we see as the guardians or, or portrayed as guardians of the people in the refugee camps. Anyway, on that note, we will go straight on to Uncle Kevin Healy. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when a very short coverage, at least for the moment, of the big game today, because it seems there might not be a big game. Remember last year they abolished the left wing altogether and both teams played down the right wing. Well, to find out what's happening, let's cross to our regular caller, Kevin, and our very favourite special commentator, Michelle, and aren't we lucky to have her? What's the issue, Kevin? An absolute sensation over here. They've fenced off the left wing altogether this year and now the teams are arguing over whether the line down what used to be the centre is now the left wing and they're refusing to play there. What's going on, Michelle? 
very interesting, Kevin. They are arguing over whether the line down what used to be the centre is now the left wing, and they're refusing to play there. A brilliant analysis, Michelle. Brilliant. What, what would we do without you? If the game does ever start, there's two big changes this year. The, the caring business class party team has a new captain, ton of bull, and the ex-captain, a bit more for the bosses, is down in the far back pocket, kicking the proverbial out of his own teammates, and the game hasn't even started, and, and there's a new umpire. This could hurt the team, because the previous umpire, Bronnie Bashup, the socialist, helped them a bit by replacing, bouncing the ball with handing it to the caring business class full forward in the goal square. That could benefit the socialist party team, Michelle. Very interesting, Kevin. There's a new umpire. This could hurt the team because the previous umpire, Mrs. Bashup the Socialist, helped them a bit by replacing bouncing the ball with handing it to the caring business class full forward in the goal square. That could benefit the Socialist Party team. Thanks for the explanation, Michelle. Another sensation, Michelle. At the moment, the Socialist Party captain, short and ambition, is up in the corporate boxes pushing his way through the lobsters and champers, ensuring that he won't go anywhere near the left wing, which is now what used to be the right wing, and insisting both teams kick to the same end. This was the first time they'd realised the game hadn't started, because that's not what they're there for. Your expert commentary, Michelle. Very interesting, Kevin. The Socialist Party captain, Mr. Shorten Ambition, is up in the corporate boxes, ensuring that he won't go anywhere near the left wing, which is now what used to be the right wing, and insisting both teams kick to the same end. Wonderful insight, Michelle, but until they sort out their stalemate, we'll return to the studio. This is a sensation! Well, thanks to Kevin and Michelle, and especially Michelle for her deep insights. On the grand final, last week we quoted that Socialist Party State Minister Jacinta Alien to Workers attacking the evil union for threatening, although the threat got dropped, to spoil the big day for everyone by providing free public transport. And now Jacinta herself is extending the free zone to provide free public transport to the game and related events. Apparently it's only evil if the unions do it. These silly suggestions that great responsible resource oil giant Hex on the planet knew decades ago that climate change was real and its industry was largely responsible but continued for decades to produce so-called experts denying what it knew. Silly because no great responsible resource stroke oil giant would put its interests ahead of the community, ahead of the future of the planet. Well, we were fortunate to sit in on a crisis meeting of the asbestos, tobacco and resource pollution industries attempting to resolve the unfortunate image their responsible industries had acquired just because of nothing more serious than a few million deaths and painful illnesses. This is a crisis, they chorused. We are a legal product and unreasonable restrictions are an illegal barrier to our right to go about our lawful business and used sensibly as part of an overall poisoned air, asbestos and tobacco diet, they are quite safe, indeed can be used as a special treat for dear little children. Big tobacco was all logic. And the jury is still out on whether our products are dangerous anyway. Big resource pollution looks sincere. Uh, unless you listen to vested interests like, like scientists and, and the medical profession. 
And anyway, even if the occasional little bit of asbestos may, and it's a big if, may cause a slight headache or whatever, that small impact doesn't occur for decades. Uh, if ever, big asbestos. Exactly, if ever. I say, big tobacco beamed, would you like to test our product? you got to be joking, but how about a free asbestos roof? We're not stupid, but how about a few whiffs from the exhaust pipe? It's very refreshing. Good God, you're not serious, but, but being serious, let's get back to the business at hand. H how to convince the putters our products are safe, used in moderation as part of a balanced diet. When we hear that, it does seem they've got a bad rap on which the optimism of the week award to energy giant, as they call it, AG Hell on Earth. After joining a mob of co-energy giants one day a couple of weeks ago saying how they supported action on climate change, next day AG Hell on Earth criticised these long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden working and iron lots who suggested its commitment to ending reliance on fossil fossils uh, left a bit to be desired. What are they talking about? We are committed to ending our reliance on fossils by 2050. It put them in their place. 2050, still polluting happily and expecting the planet still to be here. AG Hell on Earth, your Optimism of the Week award is on the way. Although Wednesday, bit of an explanation, it did clarify that commitment at its AGLAGM, where some of the long-haired lot raised a few of these issues. What the closure of big polluting old coal-fired um, coal power stations needed, Chairman Jerry May Cook the Planet showed why he's worth a few trillion a year to shareholders is a coherent national policy, government support. Exactly. Why should the big polluters be expected to fund expensive ending big polluting ending the planet when there's a public purse to pay for all that? And with proper and appropriate government compensation, they might even bring the closure forward to, say, 2049. OK, not much, but it's something. The minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie Bash Up the Workers, has launched a campaign for Trublowasi to get back on the UN of the US of the UN of the World Human Rights Council. Yes, yes, the same Human Rights Council she vehemently attacked former Socialist Party rotating big supremo little Kebby Rod for the workers for wasting money trying to get on. Now, given that exemplar of human rights Saudi Arabia, as we mentioned last week, is making a bribe, a uh, sorry, bid, to chair the council with an impeccable human rights record in beheadings, crucifixions, that young bloke they plan to crucify for the heinous crime of calling for democracy, and his lawyer serving 16 years, I think it is, for the heinous crime of defending him. That should encourage the legal profession no end. Lots of strong defences in the future. Well, we suppose the Saudis understand that offences are relevant. Why waste a good human rights opportunity? Stoning, usually reserved for women. Hacking off the odd hand or leg, which doesn't respect human rights. Well, a litany of commitment to human rights. And given the US of, which just loves human rights and regularly attacks their abuse anywhere where the government doesn't respect the freedom of US of capital, it admires Saudis' respect for human rights. Why, just this week, the US of set its own example executed a woman
woman who'd been on death row for about 15 years waiting to be executed, presumably for murdering an abusive husband. So True Blue was his honourable record with asylum seekers, indigenous people, enemies of the state like workers and evil unions. Well, we'd have to be a walk-up start. The US Army is just so angry that evil Russia is bombing Syria, supporting the Syrian government. They should be supporting the freedom-loving anti-government forces we are arming and training, bombing the evil people we are bombing, the US Army Secretary for Offensive Train Killing Ashes to Ashes exploded righteously. And you can't trust them. In Ukraine, they are breaking all recognised international law by arming and training rebels opposed to the government we support. Uh, that's the government with the fascist emblems which overthrew the elected government. Exactly. Overthrew an elected government which abused democracy. Finally, speaking of human rights and asylum seekers, bit of common sense from former Minister for Concentration Camps, raise a wire and sink the boats, scuttle them more less sun, now our latest economic guru, who joined the sundry chambers of propers to declare the government's priority was to reduce the deficit. Um, how do we achieve that scuttle then? We must cut taxes. Hmm, that makes sense. One of the sundry business profits council supremo Jennifer Worstercut Wages said big business and the government must win hearts and minds to convince people we need tax reform, as they call it. Because there are trade-offs, uh, such as, Jennifer, well, people trade off their wealth for our wealth, for the common good, of course. Good morning. Good morning, Uncle Kevin. Funny as usual. Um, if you just tuned in, you're listening to Solidarity at Breakfast on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. I'm Lalita Chalaya, taking you through till 9 a.m., another half an hour to go. Uh, just another announcement before we move on to an interview with technicals from Spain. Uh, join the 33 annual Southern Cross Brigade to Cuba. It's um, on the website, all the W's, cubabrigade.org.au. And that's happening between the 27th of December and the 16th of January. And the program looks really interesting. Over the past 57 years, Cuba has transformed itself from poverty and underdevelopment, despite numerous hurricanes and U.S. blockade against Cuba, into an example for the rest of the world and some of the things they have achieved. Highest rate of literacy, lower infant mortality rate, um, more teachers and doctors per capita, a country without homelessness. That's amazing. A country without homelessness, and this is supposed to be a third world country. A successful multiracial society, leader in organic food production, a model of participatory democracy, and best of all, the world's only sustainable economy as recognized by the WWF. So if you're interested in Melbourne, um, the person to contact is Marie Delora, uh, Delora M at hotmail.com or her phone number is 03-9478-9473. Okay, we shall move on to the next uh, item, which is a... Um, Interview I conducted with Dick Nichols. Now, I had a bit of problem with this interview because the Skype at our station basically didn't work. Uh, 
So you might find some glitches in the interview, so forgive me for that. But it is an um, um, interesting analysis of the, ele- the results of the Greek election, which we haven't heard much of in the media lately. Uh, as far as they're concerned, they've got a uh, government that's going to implement austerity measures and they may happen to leave it alone. So the media has basically not done much about it. So here we go. This is Dick from Barcelona. And he's a regular um, participant in our program. And he's actually a, the journalist for Green Left Weekly, the, um, I guess, one of the very few international left newspapers around. So here's Dick, Dick Nichols from Barcelona. Welcome to 3CR, Dick, and thank you so much for once again for being available to Solidarity Breakfast. And today we're going to talk about the result of the Greek elections. There's been a lot of ups and downs, and um, it seems like Syriza, in the end, won out. Well, I think all the analysis from, from Greek, Greece, from Greek sources and, and foreign correspondence was that this is an election that was held in a situ in a with a feeling of uh, demoralisation and a bit of depression um, after the the fact that the Greek government accepted the terms of this third memorandum. There's a whole discussion about whether that was inevitable, whether they had any choice. I'll just leave that to one side. But the I mean, Greece is supposed to be a compulsory election. I mean, it's supposed to be you're supposed to be fined if you don't vote, but uh, there's only a 55% turnout, and it it really did reflect this feeling of, well, does it really matter whether we vote or not? Because every all the important decisions aren't going to be made in Athens; they're going to be made in Brussels and Berlin, and I think that was a very strong sentiment. On the other hand, the feeling that got Syriza back was we really, you know, we really don't like what happened with the implementation of this third memorandum, but we'd rather have these people governing us than the old oligarchs and the old parties. So a lot of younger people who said, I'm not going to vote or are going to vote for other parties, maybe popular unity to the left or the Communist Party, uh, came back to Syriza in the end as a useful vote against the possibility that new democracy might win, which in some polls it w- uh, before the election it was. Uh, but there's no great uh, enthusiasm in Greece that I can see for the result, even though the government and ministers are saying we're going to do our, our level best to make sure that this uh, memorandum is implemented in a way that causes least pain possible for the mass of people. And we make the oligarchs and the rich and the people with money uh, fund the, this, this memorandum. Whether this memorandum is even viable is a big question because and a lot of, you know, even conservative economists say it isn't, that you have to have a, tax, a, uh, a debt renegotiation, a debt, a debt a cut in the, in the debt if the country's economy is ever going to... Uh, you know, get out, get out of recession. Well, in the final analysis, Syriza's seem to have paid a bit of a price here, or maybe it's a left that paid the price, because the left in within Syriza, I think about 44 um, MPs, walked out after the third memorandum was signed. In fact, some say it perhaps was a coup and a necessary price that Cyprus chose to pay um, to accept the third memorandum and perhaps go forward with Syriza and to stay in power. You know, I don't know, it, it seems a bit 
strange that you would sacrifice the healthy composition of your party um, to the capitalists. You made a big compromise there. Well, that's a, that's a big question. That's a very interesting question, and we'll see. Um, the left, the, the formal left platform, which was the formal current, which was described itself as left, and which was the core of became the core of what became popular unity. They left, as you said, but there is this gr- bigger group, uh, which was like the is, is like the left of what is Syriza today, which was the, called the group of fifty three, and they have said that we will and and you know this represents a lot of people in Syriza. I mean Syriza grew a lot, then a lot of people left when they signed the mem- memorandum, but this is still a party which has got a lot of debate and discussion about what to do. So it's not like it's just become a social democratic party, or it's just sold out, and that's it. There's a lot of uh, a lot of debate going on in Syriza, and basically what it's about is the how will Syriza, what does Syriza have to do to implement this memorandum in the way that really that really implements that implements what they say they are going to do as a government. That is to say, all right, you've said the oligarchs are going to pay. How's that going to happen? How's that going to happen? Because what that means is you have a implementation of the memorandum becomes warfare, class warfare in Greece in itself. So the whole thing doesn't stop. I think that's important to understand. Um, and I think one of the things to understand, also popular unity is didn't get into parliament. And if Andasia had allied with popular unity, the Andasia, the far left party, uh, far left coalition that had allied with popular unity, they would have got into parliament. So that was a price that was paid for sectarianism, but just leave that to one side. But popular unity it represents real forces in Greece. You know, it represents people in the unions, it represents people in the social movements. Um, and there's a lot of people in Greece, who in Syriza, who are still sort of in Syriza wanting to see how things happen. But, well, if it all goes bad, they won't be staying in Syriza. So all this is to be seen, you know. Um, and I think that that's, what, that's the battle we've got to keep, a, keep, a, keep an eye on. Um, I also don't think that the series of government, it's not in their interest just to passively implement uh, these, the, these deals because there's a big discussion whether there's a lot of wriggle room in this memorandum, but really that we'll see when time comes. I mean, the whole thing is, is designed so that every three months, the powers that be, the quadroika, which is the troika plus the... Um, European Stability Fund, which is the actual where the money's coming from, uh, they will do a a check on how well it's going, and if they think it's all right, then they will proceed to give the next uh, swathe of money to the Greek uh, government. But uh, as I say, I I think it's highly likely uh, that all this talk of opt- optimistic talk that the economy will turn the corner is not true. And that the debt burden and the fact that they've got to dedicate a great a lot of money to repayment of the debt, even though it's less than previous memoranda, will mean that will be there'll be a crisis and we'll be they'll be back to square one soon. Well, Syriza, that means, will now present as a different party. We had a left progressive um, composition before, um, and they were a coalition after all. Um, but, you know, that 
that now transform, transforms SRISA into some other organism. How do you how do you describe this this party, and um, what happens to the what we see as the progressive left um, of SRISA's characteristics? So is it a left party? What is it? You know, it, it has been transformed basically because of these events. Well, in that, well, they'll be, well, they will be different in the sense that there'll be much more revolt in their ranks, um, and that, that you know they may pay a, a huge price. Syriza may you know just just split down the middle. I think it's important to understand that that it's not Syriza is not just people who are happy with the memorandum. The Syria, you know, there's a lot of a lot of debate, a lot of controversy inside the Syriza itself at the moment. In the end. Um, Syriza might have very little to offer the people. It's um, a very tricky situation for Syriza since it came to power on the basis of um, not implementing austerity measures, and that's gone by the way. And now what do they represent? Do they represent the people or what measure they're going to, to take to preserve the rights of the people and all the oppression that they suffered? So where does that leave Syriza? Well, what they no, what they say is, well, you know, you read the uh, previous ministers. They say, well, we've agreed, for example, on labour reform. They've got this for, phrases like best European standards. They'll implement best European standards. Well, which European standards? Latvia, France, who? Uh, I mean, and what does best European standards mean? Does it mean you're allowed collective bargaining? Which is still, which still takes place in many European countries. Um, which you know, I mean, we have workers still have rights, uh, unions still have rights. Uh, or do you go to the uh, countries like, for example, Lithuania, Latvia, where the, you know the labour market is completely atomised, and there's no there's no organisation of workers that's worth anything. Uh, so that then becomes a big a big fight. Now, what they are going to what they're going to do uh, is make this a fight in European politics. They're bringing in the European Parliament as a, an, as a place of struggle. Where they're, bringing in, they're going to get commissions from the European Parliament where there's a, you know, a chance if you have an alliance between some of the social democracy and some of the left forces and the Greens, that they will say, no, what we mean by best European standards in Labour uh, labour relations is this, not you know pure neo- neoliberalism. So what's going to happen is the Greece won't go away as a big European issue. While this memorandum, so European politics will be haunted by Greece, continue to be haunted by Greece. I think it's very important to sort of well people will see that when it happens. What we have um, going on across Europe is mass mobilisations against austerity, and that's and that's the main thing like a classic is is in um, the UK where people are mobilizing and have actually got Corbyn who's leading the charge how long he'll be there who knows but um, the response response from people across Europe Spain especially is another one um, where people are putting their feet to the ground to march against the sort of measures neoliberalism is offering well, yeah. What is it? What is it? It's it's mass reaction, re- rebellion, quiet rebellion, democratic rebellion against against austerity. That's that's what it is, and and no future, especially no future for young people. I mean, we 
I'd hate to be a young person well, I'd, today in Europe because, you know, you do your education, you get your 15 degrees, you get your masters, you do all this stuff, and then you get a job in a bar. Well, okay, fine. That's not the end of the world, but it's not what you want to live your life doing. And so the permanent pressure towards the casualization of a labor market that is driven by the need, we've got to be competitive, Europe's got to be competitive with with uh, the United States and and Japan, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it is inter-imperialist competition, which drives this, is the basic force driving this destruction of workers' rights and of union rights. Uh, inevitably, there's a reaction to that. And that's what Corbyn is. Uh, it's, it's not as you know, deep going as in Greece, but that doesn't matter. I mean, it's, it's people have said enough and all of attempts by the left outside the Labor Party to build something came to a dead end. So this mass of people found something in, in the Labor Party. They found Corbyn. And Corbyn star, he, did, he was surprised himself. He said, I thought I was just going to do the token socialist campaign. I mean, that's, and then, I, then I found I was relevant. Oh, <laughs> what a shock. Now, going back to Greece, the other factor in the uh, dynamics in Greek, Greece is that the youth has uh, walked out. From what I, what I understand, the turnout, walk, I'm sorry, the voter turnout was pretty low compared to last time. I think it was 56 or something. And the majority of the youth um, refused to even turn up to the, the polling booths. So that is a big blow to Syriza. So what's happening at that front? A lot of youth, yeah, I think... I don't know. I don't have statistics, reliable statistics, but certainly a lot of youth abandoned Syriza. Uh, but what now we have an interesting situation. I mean, it goes back to what I was saying before. Syriza, Syriza youth movement, the Syriza youth organisation, came out against the memorandum. Now, what happens now? What do they do? They, I mean, we should track these things. Are they staying inside Syriza and trying to change it from within? Are they going to be purged? Are they going to put in a complete, you know, what, what, what is actually going to happen? It's an unfinished struggle, uh, what's, what's happening in Greece. It's an unfinished struggle, and that's, I think we just should understand that, you know. Um, the, 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 other, the other thing that I think we should keep an eye on in, in, in Greece is the, the countryside. So the, the Sirius's vote went down most in the big cities in Athens and Salonika, um, but it held, it held up and actually increased in the countryside. And the, the explanation I get, and the regions, when I say countryside, in the regional centres, um, the, the explanations I'm, I've read uh, to, for that is that um, Sirius has, did, has been doing enough in very difficult circumstances, in terms of emergent, emergency social programs, funding for people, um, re, rescheduling of repayment of taxes for families that are poor, that just changed the. They made a, a life a marginally less horrible in the for people in poverty, uh, so that they were actual. You know, here we have an actual improvement that has been produced by this government. And it affected enough people, particularly in the remoter areas. And we're talking about, you know, 300,000 families or something, I think, if, if my memory serves me right. 
that that made a difference. And so that the Syriza vote holds up in the countryside, but in the cities where, of course, the biggest, you have the biggest, the most politicised areas, the biggest struggles against the memorandum, that's where their vote falls most. And that's where the vote for popular unity was highest, like in Athens, uh, Athens, central Athens, Athens outskirts, Piraeus, uh, Thess- Thessaloniki, I'm sorry, Salonica centre, Salonica outskirts, and in uh, um, Vovos, a, po- a port in Thessaly, which was, was due to be privatised. So that's, so, you know, that we'll see whether that, how that plays out too. Um, well, it sounds like there's a bit of a split, isn't it, um, between the farming community and the workers in the industrial belt of Greece. So how's that going to appear for for um, Syriza? Because as, as I think you mentioned before, um, majority of the workers in the industrial areas voted for popular unity, the left that broke away or, or left Syriza um, in the dispute that we talked about early, earlier on. So how is Syriza going to survive this sort of um, crisis? Well, maybe, oh, yeah, but, but I think it's it's basically what is the series has done enough for the to, it introduced enough or had time to introduce enough of its program to make a difference to people in, in which they hadn't seen since the beginning of the bloody uh, crisis. Uh, and one, one other thing that's well, I read about, which I register, is that the people didn't want new democracy back in because they Syriza at least has a decent position, done the most they can on the refugees. That is to say, the refugees coming from Turkey into Lesbos, Kios, the vote for the Golden Dawn went up in those areas. Yeah, the vote, it went up, but it didn't go up by much. and It just didn't get it go, go up by enough to give them seats. It's a difficult position for Syriza, I guess, for those who wish to support Syriza. But the fundamental issue here is that the people of Greece chose to stay within the euro. And maybe that is, that's what drove Cyprus and his colleagues to you know, enter into this sort of negotiations and agreements with the, the Quadroika. Um, and, and that really has driven the party into a very conservative position, um, as per the left, I guess. You know, it, it's difficult to, to swallow for the pe- people of the left who put a lot of hope into Syriza. But it seems like the people of the Greece um, actually determined the pathway that Syriza chose to take. But what determined their final decision was they didn't see a way of staying in the euro and rejecting the memorandum. That is to say that that's, they didn't see that. Well, then you can have a debate about, well, how do they get themselves into that position? And a lot of people say they shouldn't have been negotiating from the beginning. From the beginning, back in January, they should have said, we are not doing any negotiations with the Troika. Well, was that politically possible? Et cetera, et cetera. So you have a whole massive unending debate about what could have been, what might have been, what should have been. But when you get to the actual situation where they had to choose to either accept this memorandum or policies that would sooner or later step, have led to their expulsion from the Eurozone because the Germans had decided that, they will, especially after the referendum, 
after the July's fifth referendum, the reaction of the Germans was, and the allies in, you know, in the Netherlands and in, um, in the Northern Europe was, well, okay, well, you can go, throw you out of the, um, throw you out of the Eurozone. And there was the European Central Bank with its hands on the tap um, of credit to the banking system. Now you have to have an argument, you know, even Varoufakis himself, who disagreed with very strongly with what happened and stood down as finance minister, was, if you read his, a lot of his comments since then, he was, he's not convinced that they could have run a secondary currency or, you know, he's not, he said sooner or later this would have led to expulsion from the Europe. Uh, so, actually, Varoufakis has um, written many, many articles on the situation, and he he seems to to go off and, um, you know, in in a way he is broadening his options, and he has um, written somewhere that he wants to form a Europe wide anti austerity measure. But I'm just wondering how much support he has for that, and who's supporting him. You know, it's 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 a bit of a lone vo- voice in the wilderness, maybe. I don't know. Um, what what have you found from your close quarter observations? Oh no, well he offers no. The, he has joined other people like John Luke Mélenchon and um, the former leader of the uh, German Social Democracy, whose name has just escaped me for the moment. Um, former finance minister for Germany, in saying, you can say what you like about Greece, but the big problem is the euro and that we need a plan B for the eurozone. And that is, there's going to be a big conference in November on what is the alternative to this Europe, to neoliberal Europe, starting with the eurozone. That is to say, and what, what is our plan for the eurozone? So what are we saying against about the so-called independence of the European Central Bank. What's our counter to that? What's our alternative to that? And all the other issues that come up. So that if there's any more struggle, when there's more struggle in a place like Spain and the whole question of the euro comes up, at least there's a plan B. The problem was that the Greeks, the Syriza, didn't have a viable plan B or weren't convinced they had a viable plan B. And those who thought, like Varoufakis, well, let's give it a go. Well, you know, we've got a plan B of some sorts here. In the end, weren't really convinced that that wasn't going to lead to expulsion from the Eurozone. Um, and I think the, we have to say that some of the... Well, we have to accept the possibility that the poor result for popular unity um, was because they were identified with Grexit. That is, that people understood that if you, you know, popular unity was running the show, that would mean more confrontation, Grexit. And the, 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 um, the other thing I'd just say is that the, there's, I think there's a bit of an over-optimistic reading of the, of the result of the referendum, which, where the no won 60%. You know, why didn't that lead to a huge vote for popular unity? Well, I think because a lot of a lot of a lot of people voted no on the basis that Cyprus asked them to vote no, which was let's put pressure on uh, Europe to soften their terms, soften their terms. It didn't work. Okay, it didn't work. Now what? Oh well, we just we just have to cop it, and uh, that's that's basically I think what happened. That was an element of what happened there. Thank you, Dick Nicholas.
Nichols, the um, Green Left reporter from Barcelona in Spain, giving us an update on uh, what's happened uh, recently in Greece. And hopefully that um, gave you a little bit of a roundup of the result and its analysis of the Greek elections. Um, apologies for some of the glitches that um, you might have heard um, over the air. Now we've got a couple of announcements before I um, round up this program. There is a... Um, Animal Activist Forum coming up 10th to the 11th of October at the Melbourne Town Hall. Um, it's on the 9th, Friday, it's a day for activism, and Saturday night for a social dinner. For those who are interested, this is your chance to network with animal activists from across Australia and share your knowledge and experience. The website for this would be all the W's, activistforum, one word, dot com. There's another fundraiser, um, the event for Stories We Tell, a collaboration between Jamie Torres from Argentina and Archie Roach, of course, our Aboriginal singer from Australia and musician, really. That's on the 16th of October, Friday, um, at the MUA, 46 Ireland Street, West Melbourne. 7.30 p.m., tickets $10. So it's on. It's a Facebook um, event. You can find it under... Fundraising event for stories we tell. And there's, not, there's one more event which is running over a couple of days. Mess the West. I'll quickly give you the um, contact for that if I can find it. Um, it's up for updates. More info. MessTheWestFest.wordpress.com So there's a heap of events happening over a couple of days. Lots of children's activities and so on. Time for me to sign off and Asia-Pacific Currents are waiting to take on the next half hour. So here we go. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.